Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading. Therefore, get your minds ready for action, being self-disciplined, and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. We need to take a moment to establish our base, which is Jesus Christ. Make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, humble before the authority of his word. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank you this evening for your faithfulness, for providing a time and a place and the uh, uh, attitude that is required to humbly come before you to uh, receive instruction. Father, we ask that you would help us to set aside distractions within and without, that, uh, Father, we would focus on what you have to say to us, what your Holy Spirit would teach us tonight. Father, protect us from those uh, outside who would want to come in and seek to do us harm and stop what we're doing. I pray that, uh, Father, you would place your angels on uh, every corner of this roof to uh, protect us and uh, that your Holy Spirit will be here guiding us and directing us in uh, everything that we discuss. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. All right. I uh, tried to print out some notes, and there's a demon in the copier, and I wasn't able to exercise it. I don't have enough faith. So uh, we will have to do with uh, the projector tonight to uh, follow along with the notes, and hopefully next week I can get them printed out for you. But that's in the Lord's sovereignty, and uh, we'll see what he does with it. But uh, last week we had an overview and an introduction to this course. This is a biblical foundation for the Christian life. And uh, we have nine lessons that are planned out here. Uh, The first of which was last week, which was just an introduction, the prolegomena, as it would be called in a systematic theology. Uh, Today we we will be doing uh, the first of two lessons in bibliology, study of the Bible. So today we're going to cover apologetics, the structure and divisions of the Bible, Inspiration and Revelation, Canonization, Transmission and Translation, and Inerrancy. It's the beginning of our notes for this class. So, the first thing we have to start with, the reason why it says apologetics up there, is because that's the term that we use when we are making an argument or an appeal or an apology, um, not the kind of apology we normally think of, like, I'm sorry, but an answer, okay, an answer for what we believe, an explanation for what we believe. So, if you were to say what, and this is kind of a unfair, what's the most important question that we might have to answer? Who is God? Okay, anybody else? Any other question, including that one, where does our answer have to come from? The Bible, Bible. yes. You're cheating, aren't you? (laughs) You read them already. Yes. But our answer has to come from the Bible, and this is the reason why we're doing two classes versus one for everything else. Because if our answers are coming from the Bible, then we need to be solid in our own faith about our Bibles, that they are trustworthy, that they do come from God. These are the topics that we're discussing. But the most important question I think that we might be asked is why I choose, why do I choose to believe the Bible? And we need to be careful with the answer that we give with this. 
Because if we give a subjective answer, that answer isn't going to work. Okay? A, subjective, a subjective answer is an answer like, I tried it and it worked for me. Now, does that make any sense to you guys? I tried it and worked for me? I could tell you a story about another guy who said, I tried it and it worked for me. He was a criminal and found himself in a jail cell and, and uh, the Messiah appeared to him and he believed in the Messiah and embarked on his faith and his argument was he tried it and it worked for him. His name was Malcolm X. So a subjective answer really doesn't work. An objective answer is what we're looking for. So the answer to the question is, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Now, you can read for yourself. I don't have to read that back to you. You can read it on the screen. This answer was stolen by me from a pastor named Vodi Bauckham. But it's okay because he stole it from the Bible. He stole it from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, a reliable collection of historical documents, written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Now, the eyewitness testimony is displayed in verses like Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Eyewitness testimony and the desire in this writing that the reception of this, those who receive it would have certainty about these events. Eyewitness testimony in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Most people would focus on the first couple of verses here. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
Most folks will stop at verse 4 because that's the gospel. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, right? The gospel in five words. The problem is this is not just a declaration of the gospel. It's also a declaration of eyewitness testimony, the whole thing. I delivered unto you of first importance. Then he goes on, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that Christ appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So if most of, of those are still alive, then at least 300 brothers, you could go and ask, is what Paul is telling us, is that true? Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So we have eyewitness testimony here. And in 2 Peter 1.16, as we just read, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, Peter says. The scripture also gives us people, places, and events to show us the historical truth of what's being written. People like the proconsuls Sergius Paulus and Gallio in Acts chapter 13 and 18. People like Alexander the coppersmith that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Um, events that took place with Festus and Agrippa in Caesarea in Acts, 20, Acts chapter 25. So the argument would be, why do you believe the Bible why, why do you think it's trustworthy? It's just an old book. It's a bunch of myths and fairy tales. There's no historical evidence that anything in that book ever happened. The problem with that is the folks who would have such a claim have one of two problems. Either they're completely ignorant, they have read a book, and only one probably, who had all of these things written in it, and they never looked at the other side of the story, dug further to find out if those things were true, or they're completely evil, and they're just trying to steer you away from the Bible. So the goal of this particular class, this first class in bibliology, is to completely shred any of, this, any of these arguments, okay? because none of them have any weight. This is why we begin with a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses. That's why we'll begin with that. The supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. This is going to be key in our study of inerrancy, in um, our study of uh, inspiration and revelation. Prophecy plays a key role in uh, these things. The other thing that we're going to have an argument with, that we're going to have some trouble with outside of um, Bible-believing Christianity is that we don't have enough support for, uh, um, enough document support for the New Testament. Specifically, they attack the New Testament. We're going to see that not only do we have the document support for the New Testament more than any other document in history, and that's just the Greek New Testament, that's just Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, but we also have manuscripts in Syriac, in Coptic, in Latin, we also have the early church fathers who quoted from the New Testament from which we could recreate the entire New Testament all but 11 verses. So we've got 300 years, the first 300 years 
of the church history where we've got church fathers writing and quoting from the New Testament scriptures. We've got the Greek scriptures being translated into other languages like Syriac, Syriac and Coptic and then finally Latin. So all of these are going to play into our study tonight. Beyond these um, documentary facts, we've got miracles. Now, miracles in themselves may be questionable to the unbelieving mind. But the miracles are confirmation of the people that are giving the prophecies. The miracles are confirmation for for the apostles that are writing the New Testament. These are the things that are proving um, that they are qualified to uh, uh, write New Testament documents. Think of it this way. The uh, Pharisees claimed that Jesus of Nazareth was unlettered, uneducated, and untrained, meaning he didn't go to their schools and he didn't have fancy letters after his name. The Pharisees also accused Peter and John of these things. They said he was with Jesus. How do these uneducated and untrained men, how do they speak with such authority? They don't have the education that we approve of. They don't have the fancy letters after their names. Well, the problem with that is, why would anybody desire man's approval when they could have God's? So, the miracles are God's fancy letters after the names of the apostles. That's their qualification, okay? And it's not a qualification within themselves. It's a qualification from God. Moving on to fulfilled prophecies. These are some of the most important things that we could look at. And I had a list in my original study of bibliology. A list of 22 things, I think 22 specific scriptures. That's too big a list to go over tonight because we've got so much, so much ground to cover. But I... I, I Got it down to Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 because I think these are the most important. And actually, I just want to go to Isaiah 53 because I have actually seen folks hear this verse, hear these verses, not knowing where exactly it comes from and being asked a question that I'll ask you in a second. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Let's just do this, NASB. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Here's the question. Who was that written about? You guys know. You guys know. But when that question is posed to somebody who's hearing this for the first time, doesn't know where it comes from, they think it might be the Bible, but they don't know where, they automatically answer, oh, that's, that's got to be Jesus. But then when you tell them this is the book of Isaiah, wow. 
Sorry. <laughs> I just looked back at Doug and saw that there was no hair on his face. Um, where was I? Give me a second to confess. Um, this, as soon as they hear that this is from the book of Isaiah and was written 750 years or more before Christ walked the earth, it's amazing how fast they backpedal. But it's undeniable. The same with any of these verses from the Old Testament that were written hundreds to a thousand years before Christ. Well, really, if you think about the Proto-Evangelium, the uh, promise that we have in Genesis 3.15 and what follows there, all of these things that were written about Jesus Christ from the beginning of the Bible through the Old Testament, um, when you lay all of these things out, there's nobody else that could fulfill, that has fulfilled these prophecies. There's a mathematical impossibility of um, anybody else fulfilling these prophecies. And you can go down to, I think it's 19 of the specific uh, prophecies, of which there, there are hundreds of prophecies, but 19 of those prophecies, and there's a mathematical impossibility. Only Jesus Christ could be the one who fulfilled these, these prophecies. Prophecy being part of uh, inerrancy and inspiration, these prophecies are proving to us that only God could be the one to write the Bible to put the Bible together as a library of books. Psalm 22 will also speak of these things, and I'll just give you a few verses here. One of the first things is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words that were uttered by Christ on the cross. But if that's not convincing enough, um, many bulls encompass me, from verse 12, Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the, in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. So, dogs encompass me. Who are those? Who are them? Gentiles. Those are Gentiles. A company of evil evildoers encircles me. Who are they? On either side. Crosses on either side. Thieves. They have pierced my hands and feet. That requires no explanation. I can count all my bones, because not one of them was broken. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So these are pretty specific. These are exceptionally specific prophecies that were written a thousand years before the events actually happened. Now, the second part of this apologetics issue is how do we know what is historically accurate? Because the argument that I have also heard, that I also get, is, you know, I'm just, I'm very scientifically minded. And if I can't see something scientifically, I just can't understand it or believe it. There's a problem with that. That's not how we understand history. George Washington is not observable, measurable, or repeatable. That's not how we know what is factually true about history. We know it by evidentiary proof. That means eyewitness testimony, internal, external corroboration, archaeological and forensic consistency. We have things like 
facts like over 40 authors from three different continents, writing in three different languages, writing over a period of that should actually be 1,600 years with the same overarching theme. Jesus is the center of the entire library of the Bible. We have over 23,000 archaeological digs, all of them confirming the Bible, not one of them disproving facts of the Bible. This is our foundation, where we're going to start from as far as studying bibliology. And this will draw some questions that will be answered in the following sections. The structure and division of the Bible. The original languages of the Bible are Hebrew, Aramaic, Hebrew and Aramaic for the Old Testament. There are a few verses for Ar- of Aramaic. Most of it is in Hebrew. Um, Greek for the New Testament. The Bible is a complete library, really, divided into two parts that we commonly refer to as testaments. And the phrases you will hear about this are the Old Testament revealed in the New, the New veiled in the Old, or as another has put it, the New is in the Old contained and the Old is in the New explained. What do these phrases mean? That means, as we'll study in a minute, that means progressive revelation. That means God starts with a small amount of information and builds on that in the Bible. Okay, So that's what we mean by progressive, that revelation unfolds over time. Here is a, an overview of the Bible as we have it broken up today, as we see it today uh, commonly referred to. The law is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or the books of Moses. Okay, History. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Okay? These are all the Old Testament books in the order that we have them in our Bibles, how we commonly see them um, broken up. Poetry also can, can be called the writings in some places. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. We have the prophets broken up into two, um, two uh, smaller groups, the major prophets and the minor prophets, mostly because of the size of these books. Okay? It's not that uh, Micah is any less important of a prophet than Isaiah, it's just that the books are smaller. You have 12 minor prophets and very, very small books comparatively. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel for the major prophets. The minor prophets, the 12, would be Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the only Italian prophet. Malachi, Malachi. Then the New Testament. Okay, And I'm going to go back in a second. I just want to go through the whole list, um, get the whole list in, in sequence. The New Testament is a little bit different, but we can think of it very similarly. We have the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The book of Acts and the book of Revelation are kind of in a class by themselves because the book of Acts is the only book of, specifically, only book of prophecy in the New Testament. And the book of Acts is history. Really, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are also historical, but we commonly refer to them separately as the Gospels. Now, I didn't put this in the list, and you can write this down because you'll hear this commonly here and and elsewhere. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic Gospels. They're separated from John 
because of their similarity. Um, John being written much later and being in a different, uh, having a different focus than the first three. The letters. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1, 2 and 3 John, and Jude. I've already discussed Revelation. Now further I would break this, and it is broken down, into Paul's epistles and the general epistles or letters. So Paul's epistles extend from Romans to Philemon, and the general epistles are Hebrews through Jude. Okay? A lot of these letters, as you can see from the title, Hebrews, a lot of these letters are written to Hebrew Christians, are specifically written to a Hebrew audience. Uh, Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter. Um, but they're all referred to as the general, or sometimes the Catholic epistles, although that has nothing to do with the Catholic Church. That is the word um, for general, okay, um, or universal. So rather than being written, those letters, rather than being written to specific people or churches, like Paul's letters are written to the Thessalonians or to the Philippians, those churches are written, they're called encyclical letters, they're written to a universal audience, they're written to all believers, okay? So you don't have a address that says from Barnabas to such and such Bible church, wherever, or from James, he writes to uh, those in the dispersion, same with Peter in his letters, okay? John's first letter is written kind of as a sermon, so it doesn't have an address like a letter at all. Second and third John are personal letters to specific people. Um, I also want, I'm giving you the things that you're going to hear eventually and already have explanations, already have an understanding for us, so you're not stumbling on that and missing what's, what's said following it. Um, Jesus also refers to this group in the Old Testament of books, uh, specifically as, uh, and it's referred to elsewhere, as the Law and the Prophets, or the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, or the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Okay, So that's also how you will hear about the books of the Old Testament. Um, Tanakh is another expression, uh, which is um, Torah, Nevi'im, and uh, Kethavim, which are the Hebrew words uh, for law, prophets, and writings. Our next section here is Inspiration and Revelation. The first thing that we need to understand here is that the Bible is not focused on mankind. The Bible is focused theocentrically, that is, God, it's centered on God. But more specific than that, the Bible is Christocentric, or it's focused on the person of Jesus Christ. It progressively reveals the person of Jesus Christ. We have some scriptures there that will... Um, uh, elaborate on that, unfold that, or unpack that for you. The next concept that I would add on to that, the scriptures being 
centered on Jesus Christ, is that as we understand the person of Jesus Christ being 100% human and 100% divine, it is the same with Scripture. Scripture, the Bible, the collection of books that we have, the library of books that we have is 100% human and 100% divine. Why? Jesus has a human nature. He is 100% human, fully human. But he also has a divine nature. 100% divine, those both coming together. Now that's kind of strange. That mathematically doesn't work, right? 100 and 100 make 200. You guys that are married... In your marriage, what kind of a percentage do you think each person each person brings to the marriage or ought to put in to the marriage? It's okay if you're wrong. Most people are. That's a beautiful answer. 100%. 50-50. That was my answer when my wife asked. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have Christ yet. That was my excuse. Um, yes. We ought to be bringing 100% of ourselves to the table, giving 100%. Second thing, the relationship between husband and wife is a one-flesh relationship. So 100% of Stephanie is joined with 100% of Dan into one flesh, into a one-flesh relationship. Okay? Now, of course, that analogy will break down when we're in the face of Christ, but it kind of helps to... to uh, um, illustrate what we're talking about here, that we can bring two separate parts together and make them a whole, make them one. But those two separate parts were 100% of each part. Okay. All right. Why do we say the, the, the word and the word? Okay. The word, capital W, is how we refer to Jesus Christ. The word, lowercase w, oftentimes, is how we refer to the scriptures, the Bible. Okay. But uh, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, if you've heard me ask this before, don't answer. What is the word of God here in verse 12? You've seen the whole verse. What is the word of God? Nobody's answering because everybody's heard me say this before, right? Most people would, would stop here and assume this is the Bible. This is the scripture, okay? But we need to move on and see the context. Verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There is no distinction in, in verse 12 and 13 between, between the living and the written word. Jesus Christ is both. He is the living word in the person of Jesus Christ and the expression, the expression of the person of Jesus Christ, the mind of Christ. That's how the Bible refers to itself, the mind of Christ. So here we have an illustration, an explanation, an understanding that drawing together of the human and divine in the person of Jesus Christ, understanding the difference between the living word and the written word. (laughs) 
further distinctions to make there, why it is 100% human and 100% divine. If the Bible, and it is, is inspired by God, that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, they spoke from God, okay? no prophecy of it is of its own interpretation. That means nobody comes up with Scripture on their own. They must be led, carried along by the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that those human authors then become uh, amanuenses. That doesn't mean that they become um, just a hand with a pen in it. Okay? These human authors still have their own personalities, their own vocabularies, um, all of their own uh, experience with God to write from. But God, being sovereign, has full charge and control as well. So we have 100% of the humanity of the authors and 100% of the divine author coming together to create these books of the Bible. So 100% human, 100% divine. Either way, we're looking at it here. The Bible is God-breathed. That's what it claims to be. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This word breathed out here is the Greek word theopneustos. It's literally God breathed. Okay? So this verse is claiming that God inspires, directly inspires, all of the writings, all of the Scripture, all of the books of the Bible. Inspiration means to breathe upon or into something. Theologically, we understand this. Inspiration is often used for the condition of being directly under divine influence, and it is viewed as the equivalent of the Greek term theopneustos. The Bible is the product of God delivering his message through human vessels without a loss of expressionary freedom from either. Okay? So God fully expresses himself as well as each human author. The Bible is a progressive revealing of God and his plan, really. It is a progressive revealing of God and his plan. Inspiration distinguished, we're going to do an inspiration distinguished from revelation, interpretation, and illumination here in this last part of it. Inspiration involves man in an active sense, whereas revelation is solely the activity of God. Okay? That means when God reveals something, only God is going to be able to reveal it. He's revealing some secret, some mystery, some prophecy. He is the one that inspires that. Inspiration involves man in the active sense when man is now called upon to write these things down. Revelation is the fact of divine communication. That means God is directly communicating to us by this revelation or manifestation. The revealing of his truth, his plan, his purpose, is a fact of divine communication. Inspiration is the means of divine communication. That means the Holy Spirit is carrying along the prophets and causing them to write down what God has desired. Interpretation is the process of understanding that divine communication. Illumination is the process by which the Holy Spirit teaches what has been disclosed. That's Those two last two things are where we come in. Okay? Interpretation and illumination is our realm of study. Okay? We interpret by the Holy Spirit. 
just as the men who wrote the scriptures were inspired by God, by, by the Holy Spirit specifically, we are, we are moved by the Holy Spirit and taught of the Holy Spirit. We see this in verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. The Holy Spirit has a teaching ministry with us where he helps us in, in our interpretation and illumination of the text. But that does not preclude that interpretation requires a set of rules, a particular process that we go through that is logical. And we'll go over that in hermeneutics. So inspiration being the means of divine communication. We looked at 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Also Romans chapter 15 verses 4 and 5. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting here we have the endurance and the encouragement in verse 4, and then that God is a God of endurance and encouragement in verse 5. God is providing both the Scriptures and the encouragement and endurance from them. Interpretation is the process of understanding that divine communication. In Genesis chapter 40 and verse 8, we see, They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. That means God's got to provide the interpretation as well. As we study hermeneutics um, next Sunday, we will see that the Bible often interprets itself in difficult passages. I would actually say recently from what I've been thinking about and studying, the Bible always interprets itself. And I'll explain this this way. In particular prophecies, that's easy to see. Like in the book of Daniel or Revelation. You read something, you read some, symbol, some, some symbology, um, some specific things are mentioned or listed, and you are left, if you stop there, thinking, well, what does all that mean? And if you continue to read down you see the explanation of those symbols or whatever we're seeing. Now, here's the other thing. We get to difficult passages that are hard to understand that sometimes are pretty scary. And the problem is we stop there and see there must be something else going on here. Rather than following through with our hermeneutic and and looking at it scripture to scripture and seeing that the simple passages, the clear passages, are what help us to interpret the difficult passages. So if we're looking at a passage that on its surface looks like we might lose our salvation, do we interpret the clear passages based on that difficult passage? No, the reverse. The clear passages, the ones that clearly state that God is the one that is faithful, God the Father and the Son are the ones that hold us in His hands, and no one can take us out of His hands. The passages that clearly explain that eternal life is a free gift... Um, those passages are the ones that we would use to interpret the more difficult ones. So, to me, God provides the interpretation for himself throughout the scriptures. It's just a means of being patient to allow him to reveal that, his Holy Spirit to reveal that to you in his time. Illumination is the process by which the Holy Spirit teaches what has been disclosed. So, 1 John 2, verses 20 and 27, we all have received... Um, an anointing. That anointing is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit teaches us all things. 
Now, in those verses, there's the question, and I went over this this morning at Corpus Christi as well, because there's a, there's a um, translation question here. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. That's how the ESV translates it, the NASB. Um, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Well, my problem with that is that you can translate that you know all things. And I think that translation works better when we look further at verse 27. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but has his, his anointing teaches you about all things. Jesus Christ himself says to the apostles that the Holy Spirit will be sent to them to teach them all things and to bring, the, to bring them uh, to remembrance the things that he, they've been taught. Okay? So the claim here is not omniscience. The claim here is not that all the believers, if you're a real believer, that means you have all knowledge. There's nothing you don't know. That's not it. What the reality here is that every believer has the anointing, has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, and they have all knowledge available to them. But that knowledge at the sovereignty of, of God the Father and of Jesus Christ is revealed to the believer in God's time for God's purposes. John 14, 26, the helper of the Holy Spirit, just mentioned that, teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The next section, section being canonization. What that means is how did we get the specific books that we have in our Bibles today. Why those books? Why 66? Why not 67 or 65? Did Constantine just, he liked that number 66? Was there this, this guy back in history in 325 that said, you can have this many books and no more? Because the argument that you'll get is the entire Bible that we have today was put together around 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea that Constantine, the emperor of the um, the Roman Empire, decided which books would go into the Bible. Um, or, even worse, that all the books that we have in the Bible right now were written by those men in 325 AD. Huge problem with that, we already stated. We have all these Greek manuscripts, almost 6,000 manuscripts. Some of them are fragments. The uh, oldest one that I'm aware of at this point is dated somewhere around 80 AD, and I want to talk to you about that after class. Um, a fragment of Mark was found several years ago um, and seems to be dated about 80 AD. That is the oldest fragment of the Bible that I'm aware of that has ever been found. And as we talk about these things, we're going to see when I said that we have more documentary evidence for the Bible than any other historical document in history, that's one of the pieces that's so important. Prior to finding that fragment... Um, the closest we had was about 125 A.D., a fragment of the Gospel of John. But still, within three decades um, of the uh, completion of the canon and the writing of that particular document. Canonicity defined. Literally defined, we have two particular words, Greek and Hebrew. Canon is the Greek word, and it means a straight rod, a rule, like a ruler or a staff, a measuring rod. 
We find examples of this in 2 Corinthians 10, 13 through 16 and Galatians 6, 16. That's the, that's the um, definition of this word, though. It is used primarily as what... Same, with, the same thing with the kane, the Hebrew word there in Ezekiel 40 and 42. These words are used to describe something that you line everything up against to see if it's straight, to see if it's right, if it's true. Okay? Um, what's something you would use in carpentry, something like that, that you would line everything up against? A straight edge. Okay. So you line everything up against it to make sure that it's straight. You use a level to make sure that something is not leaning to one side or the other. This is what kenon and kane mean. Okay? Transferred over to the Bible, then we have this um, idea of everything else needs to measure up to these books, to this canon. Theologically, the literal concept provided the basis for a later extended use uh, of meaning, a standard. The canon, the kenon, or the kane, is the standard by which we measure everything else. Even in pre-Christian Greek, the word bore a non-literal meaning being used to describe a standard in ethics, art, or literature. In early Greek or early Christian usage, it came to mean the rule of faith, the normative writings, or authoritative scripture. The early church fathers referred to the canon of Christian teaching, which they called the canon of the church, the canon of the truth, and the canon of faith. Canonicity described. We have sacred writings. We have authoritative writings. These are the passages that we would look at for these uh, particular things. But what I want to focus on, because we can't look at everything in the notes. These notes are for you eventually, not tonight, because God didn't want you to take uh, notes home tonight. Um, is eventually for you to take these notes home and study them for yourselves. So I'm focusing on specific things. And of course, I promised we would have question and answer. Uh, as well, if there are specific things that you're um, that you have questions about. Point three here: by the first century A.D., the collection, that is the collection of the scriptures, is called the Law and the Prophets, and the others that have followed in their steps. That means the Law and the Prophets prophets start as canon. That means any book that is going to be claimed for the New Testament, has to line up with the Old Testament. This is one of the first things that got me. Because I was in to a lot of the other writings, what are called the Gnostic writings. Um, you'll even find, you, you'll even find you don't, don't bother looking for it, but you could find a book out there called The Other Bible, which claims to have all the books that weren't included in the Bible. They're the forbidden books. That's an enticement for you to, to buy it as well. It's called The Other Bible. The problem is... None of those writings are consistent with the Old Testament writings that were approved, that were authoritative for the Hebrew uh, people, for the, for the Israelites. Um, and we'll talk about um, the other aspect of that. Why, why is it that the approval of God's people makes a difference in just a second? But any New Testament book has to line up with the Old Testament books. It has to teach the same truth or unfold in a greater way the same truth. So we have the Law of the Prophets, the other ancestral books, the Law and the Prophecies and the rest of the books, the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms, and so on. You have these, these uh, titles for the collection of books that they had coming down to the Scriptures laid up in the Temple, the Scriptures, Scripture, 
a collective, the most holy books, the book of God, the most holy records, uh, the oracles of God, even the Bible has that phrase, uh, the oracles, the prophetic word, um, all of these were titles that were coming into use in the first century. Canonicity determined. Here's where I said we're going to get into that, why it makes a difference that the people of God how it is that the people of God approve or recognize these specific books. In a real sense, Christ is the key to the inspiration and canonization of the Scriptures. It was he who confirmed the inspiration of the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 4, 7, and 10, every time he answers a temptation from the devil, he answers quoting Scripture. Those are the three verses that we have those examples This is an illustration of Jesus not only confirming the inspiration of the Hebrew canon, that it is written, God has written these things, that we must, by every word of God, we live. Um, He's not only illustrating that, but he's illustrating for us how we deal with the same thing, how we deal with temptation. Scripture. It was he who promised that the Holy Spirit would direct the apostles into all truth, in John 16:13, and the fulfillment of that promise resulted in the writing and the collection of the New Testament. Okay, so in John 3, uh, John 16:13, he's giving a promise to the apostles about the Holy Spirit being sent to show them all things, bring to their remembrance all the things that Jesus taught, giving them a promise so that they will be writing these New Testament books. Inspiration and prophetic determines canonicity. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, We have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. Remember, I explained that before. That means that nobody just sits down and decides to write a book of the Bible. It's got to come from the Holy Spirit. So, inspiration and propheticity determine canonicity. That means God inspires the work, and he inspires it through a prophet, through a chosen vessel to write it down. That determines canonicity. That means... The church doesn't determine what is canon. We recognize what God has made canon, what he has made the standard. Canonicity discovered. A couple of things here as prerequisites. It's written by a prophet. Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Divine confirmation of that prophet. Exodus 4, verses 1 through 9, Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Divine confirmation in Hebrews 2, 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Divine confirmation in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs, wonders, and mighty works. 
consistency with previously revealed truth. Remember that I said, if any new writing comes out, it's got to line up with the first writings. Now, this is the main reason why there are no more writings. Because the Bible says there are no more writings to come. We're done. Okay? That's why when we see guys like Joseph Smith say, oh, I've got a new revelation from God. Well, wait a minute. The previous revelation, we're lining up what you're saying with the word of God, and, and he says no. He's not going to provide another revelation now. Same thing with the Quran. If God has already said something, he's not going to contradict himself. The God who cannot lie. He's not going to contradict himself. Particularly when he's already said he's not going to give another revelation. We have all that we need for life and godliness, the scripture says. Then we're not going to have God contradict himself. First, in bringing in a new writing. And second, bringing in a writing that says, all that other stuff that I wrote before, we're throwing that out the window and doing something new. God doesn't do things that way. So consistency with previously revealed truth. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 17 and 18, where Paul says, Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. But yes. Uh, Hebrews 6.18 So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Acts 17.11 These Jews were no, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They didn't just believe when Paul the Apostle comes into town and said, hey, this is what's up. They didn't just fall on their knees and say, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. They had a canon to compare what he was saying, to compare what he was teaching. Did what he was teaching line up to what God had already revealed to them in the scriptures? And 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know every spirit of God. By, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So how do I determine what spirit it is? Is it lining up with a canon, with a standard, with the word of God? 100% prophetic accuracy. How many of Joseph Smith's prophecies came true? Anybody know? Doug, you know. Zero. <laughs> How many of Muhammad's prophecies? How many of Buddha's? God's standard is 100% accuracy because God himself is the divine standard, is the source of the prophecy. And so God not being able to lie and having all knowledge, all possible knowledge to have, even the, um, not only the factuals, the things that will happen, that have happened, but all the possi possibilities as well. There isn't any knowledge that God is limited from, that, that is, it is kept from his sight. So, his standard then for a prophet is 100% accuracy. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 and 22 says, And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has, has not spoken? 
When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that word, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Now that passage, those two verses don't explain there. That prophet also ought to be stoned, ought to be put to death. Because he has decided to speak for God without actually hearing from God himself. The power of God. We saw Hebrews 4.12. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. We looked at 16 and 17. Um, 1 Peter 1, 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. The acceptance or the recognition by the people of God. Okay, First Thessalonians 2.13 As we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is the concept. The Holy Spirit in his ministry of teaching, in his ministry of illumination, is teaching each believer, is convicting each believer of the truth of what they're seeing. Okay? So the people of God are recognizing what God has given to them. They are not deciding what God has given to them. They are not deciding what the books um, are that they are going to put together in the collection. They are not uh, deciding uh, which books to, to leave out and which books to include arbitrarily they're deciding these things because they're recognizing what god has given to them they're deciding these things because what god is giving them is lining up with what god previously gave them the standard daniel 9 2 this is one of the most fascinating prayers in the entire uh, bible to me because the first thing daniel does before he begins to pray and intercede for the people of israel he reads his bible what a concept. You read your Bible, you find out what God has committed to do, what God has purposed to do, and that's what you pray for. This is what Daniel does. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He read the Bible. He found out what God had purposed to do. And that's what he prayed for. First Timothy 5.18 2 Peter 3.16, these are verses that you can look up on your own at another time. Um, and Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. So the people of God recognize what is given to them by God and compare it to the standard of what he has previously given. So this is a quote from Louis Gossin, he says, in this affair, then, the church is a servant and not a mistress, 
a depository and not a judge. She exercises the office of a minister, not of a magistrate. She delivers a testimony, not a judicial sentence. She discerns the canon of the scriptures. She does not make it. She has recognized their authenticity. She has not given it. The authority of the scriptures is not founded then on the authority of the church. It is the church that is founded on the authority of the scriptures. This is the mistake that other traditions make. Is that there, with them it's a subjective standard. And I'll mention the Catholic church. They have their magisterium. Not only do they decide what books they're going to allow, but they also tell you their own interpretation, what it means, and tell you, do not try to interpret it yourself. You're not qualified. Only we can interpret for you. We will tell you what God has said. Now, where does the authority lie in a situation like that? In the hands of men. Where does the authority lie when God reveals his purpose in his testimony and gives it to men? The authorities in God. The authority comes from God. So this is the basis of this phrase. It is the church that is founded on the authority of the scriptures, not the other way around. Okay? The scriptures are the authority. The authority that comes from this pulpit is not the man. It is the scripture that is being taught. And as soon as the man diverts from those scriptures, there's no longer any authority. Transmission and translation. A couple of particular things. The integrity of the Old Testament, as far as its transmission, is different from the New Testament. The Old Testament, um, we rely on the established transmission of what's called the Masoretic tradition. That means there was a specific tradition of people who kept the Old Testament texts, texts and had a rigorous uh, transmission, pro- or, uh, translation, or transmission process. Sorry, a rigorous transmission process. This is uh, part of the answer to the uh, question, the argument um, of problems with transmission and translation. The Hebrew scriptures, the tradition here, is not a sloppy tradition. It is one that is, uh, was perfected over time. It is one that when they uh, copy a book of the Bible when they make a copy of a particular text, not only will they uh, verify reading through it, they will count the letters and the lines. They will verify completely that there are no mistakes. If there is any question as to what ought to be in the text itself or not, if they're not sure, they put it outside of the text in a note. But they always left it with the text, just not within the text, on the margins, if you will. So, If they found that any of these copies had mistakes in them, those copies would be burned so that those mistakes would not go on to be retransmitted. So that's the integrity that we find in the Old Testament texts. The fidelity of the New Testament texts rests on a completely different basis altogether. What we have with the New Testament texts are the mountain of manuscript evidence almost 6,000 manuscripts or fragments that we have, ranging in date from the first century now, from 80 AD, roughly 80 AD for a fragment of Mark, uh, 
um, for another thousand years or more. Okay, 1300, I think it is. It's been a while since I read um, general introduction to the Bible. But uh, over a thousand year span of time, okay, we have almost 6,000 manuscripts. With those manuscripts, those particular manuscripts, and the, the number I've got here is 5366. It's, it's greater, much greater now. Um, with all of those manuscripts written over so long a period of time, we're going to demolish a particular argument, and I mentioned this to you last week. The argument um, about the, tr- the transmission um, of the scriptures is also given and was given by uh, uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, when he was arguing, why do you believe a 3,000-year-old book that's been translated so many times you couldn't possibly know what it originally said? Here is the silly version of that argument. You're familiar with the game the children play when they sit in a circle and one whispers to another all the way around. By the time it gets to the first person, the message that he hears isn't, doesn't, or doesn't remotely resemble the original message that came from his mouth. Big problems with that, okay? First of all, it's an ignorant argument because it doesn't realize how transmission and translation happens. The second thing is, it's, a, it's an extremely childish argument, okay? In a twofold way, this doesn't work with the Bible. This doesn't work within the wealth of Greek manuscripts we have, let alone the translation process. If you compare the message in the first three centuries of the church with the following centuries, if you compare the earliest manuscripts, full manuscripts we have, which are about the fourth century, to the latest manuscripts we have, they have the same message. They have the same message. The minor differences um, are going to be uh, pretty clear when we look at inerrancy. You'll see problems, uh, a problem, a list of particular problems here of the types of issues that we might find, the type of errors that might creep in. Now, these errors are pretty simple errors, like you can see fish in here. Number five, Jennifer is a grandchild. Now, if we have one manuscript that separates those two words, and the vast majority of them do not, then what was the original? Probably the combined word of grandchild, right? The majority of manuscripts are saying that. This is the kind of nonsense when you hear, oh, there are hundreds of thousands of mistakes in the, in, the, in the New Testament manuscripts. Those are the kinds of mistakes. And you compare all of these together. If you have 10, say if you even have 10 manuscripts, and one of them, there's a little bit of an error, like a misspelling, or the word is a little different, but you have nine others to compare it with. Now we're talking about almost 6,000 to compare with. The translation process, similar issue. Translation never happens the way that Bill Nye seems to think it does. Translation does not happen from language to language to language to language until we finally get to the New American Standard Bible. Translation happens not from Greek to Syriac to Coptic to Latin to German to English. Translation always happens always should happen, unless you're reading the New King James Version. I'm sorry, the King James Version. Unless you're reading the King James Version, and then we translate 
from the Latin into Greek and then back into English. Um, But that's a side note. Translation always happens from Greek to Syriac, from Greek to Coptic, from Greek to Latin, from Greek to German, from Greek to whatever language. Same thing with the Hebrew and the Aramaic for the Old Testament. That's how we translate the Bible into a new language. It, it never comes and should never come from a translation. It should always come from the original text, right? All right. So that's the basis of our transmission and translation. Uh, we'll spend a few minutes next week on inerrancy. And I'll give you the further reading here. This is the last part of it. Um, there are three particular books that I'd recommend for you at this point. There's a lot of books that, there are there are a lot of books that you could read about these topics, but three particular ones have been helpful for me, and I loved what Gene Cunningham said about that last weekend. That these things are things that are that have worked for me, that God has taught me, that I have experienced in the Word, um, not just as theoretical concepts, but as practical experience. I do not have enough faith to be an atheist. That'd be the first one I recommend. Because this is the book that convinced me of the veracity of the New Testament. Which led me then to the next chapter in the book. That if the New Testament was reliable, was trustworthy, what did it say about Jesus? And if, it, if what it said about Jesus was pretty specific about who he was, then I needed to change my thinking on the whole matter. Okay? There are... There is a, a wide range, there, there is a wide range of arguments within that book that span from the existence of God all the way to the scriptures and what the scriptures contain in the New Testament. Are the scriptures trustworthy? If they are, what do they say about Jesus? And if they say these things about Jesus and they're trustworthy, what does that mean? What, what should we do with this information? Well, if you don't want to be obstinate, if you don't want to fail the will test that he gives you there, the will test is, what would it take for God to prove to you his existence? Um, and Nietzsche, if anybody's familiar with the, um, the philosopher, if you want to call him that, Nietzsche, um, if, he says, if anyone were to prove this God of the Christians to us, we would be even less likely to believe in him because it is our preference that it decides, not facts. So the will test is... There is nothing that God could do to cause you to believe that he exists. Lewis Perry Chafer's Systematic Theology, the specific volume on Bibliology, and the General Introduction to the Bible by Norman Geisler. These will give you a a far-reaching beyond the um, basics, and I've kind of gone beyond the basics anyway, but that's because there are a lot of folks in this room who need more than the basics, I think. So I'm trying to provide for everybody that's in the room. But these three books are what I would start with. And like I said, next week we'll spend a few minutes on inerrancy and then get into hermeneutics. Any questions? Short questions. Long questions can be saved for after the class. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for these things, for your teaching, for your Holy Spirit that you have given to us to illuminate our hearts, to teach us your word. We thank you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.